Good morning and welcome to Coffee with the Sarlows. I'm Kelly. Hi guys, I'm Karen. We're going to start off the show notes today with barely contained excitement (laughs) because as you know by the title of the show, we have a lovely guest on today. Um, But to keep things professional, show notes first. Uh, We have our evening with medium events coming up in December on the 4th. Tickets are on sale at the website by sarlo.com. As you've probably already heard, we did cancel our July and August events. Mm -hmm. Tickets have already been refunded. If you were one of the ticket holders and have not seen the refund come through, give us a call at 705-476-2613. Okay, by now you guys know that we love emotional intelligence, guest of our show today talking on that topic, Um, but we have a second podcast series and it's all about emotional intelligence and spiritual growth, tons of tools. That website, or pardon me, those come in a series of five mini shows, 10 to 15 minutes each. Kelly and I pick a topic and we cover it. They always run the first week of every month. The very first show is always free and available at bysarlo.com. The remaining four are always available at the website patreon.com backslash bysarlo. And if you're looking for far more tools than another podcast show, um, they're all available on patreon.com. It's a paid Mm -hmm. platform. You can access any of the tiers that look appealing to you. It's non-commitment past one month, so you can jump in and out of tiers as needed or leave altogether and come back. Um, We're just here to support you in all the ways that we can creatively think of. Um, So if you've got feedback for us, you let us know. Go ahead, take it away. (laughs) We do private sessions for clients all over the world, and you can always contact us by telephone, by Skype, FaceTime, WhatsApp, and Zoom. And I'd like to stress, because this is always asked of us when someone's calling to to book an appointment, is it as accurate? Is it as good as someone who's seeing us in person? And it's totally as good and as accurate because our connection to the spirit world is what matters. Where you are doesn't matter to us or to the spirit world. Good. Mm -hmm. And we have gift certificates available. They can be arranged for contactless pickup through COVID times, if that's important to you, or we can email them to you as well. So you can contact us through the website um, to either of the emails or our general info, and we will make sure that we have those arrangements made for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So massive girl crush. Um, Incredible author. We've been talking about yeah. her on the show for a little while now since we discovered her back in uh, in the, with the winter months this year. Her name is Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and she has coined the term or the syndrome perfectly hidden depression. Mm-hmm. We reached out to her more specifically, Karen, you reached out to yeah. her because That's you get job. all the good the goodies on the get ga- <laughs> are on the on the show. And she agreed to be on our show. And we actually ended up realizing or being told that we were part of her book tour. Mm-hmm. So this has just been like such a wild surprise and, and yeah. so much fun for us. So we we actually just got to sit down moments ago before recording this for you. Um, we sat down with her and recorded for an hour and a half so that she could really educate you um, as to what perfectly hidden depression is, how to identify it, and how to work through that. So if you're listening on behalf of yourself or on behalf of a loved one today, yeah. um, thank you for being here and getting the dirty work started. Enjoy. Yeah. So before we jump into it, what I wanted to do for listeners is actually play a sound clip from her podcast oh, show called yeah. Self Work. So I'll, uh, I'll play that for you now. 
This is Self-Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self-Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self-Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own Self-Work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self-Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas for over 25 years now, and I started Self-Work in order to try to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be very interested in psychological and emotional issues. Maybe you're in therapy. To those of you who have been just diagnosed with depression or anxiety, or you're having a relationship problem that just seems out of your reach, or... The third group, those of you who might never consider darkening the door of a therapist, but are just curious enough to listen to someone like me. So without further ado, here's Dr. Margaret Rutherford. So Dr. Margaret, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm I'm delighted to be here for sure. Well, you're on our girl crush list. Yes. Oh, So... Yes. We have been so excited ever since we read your book and listened to your podcast shows. Um, We feel like we are getting to know you and we feel like it's just amazing to be able to share you with our listeners. Well, thank you. Gosh, that is so kind. That gave me a little goosebumps. That's really (laughs) wonderful. You know, the book was a very... um, it was very personal for me. Mm-hmm. I've certainly been perfectionistic in my lifetime, but it was my mother who really struggled with depression and she taught me how to be perfectionistic. So, and uh, the podcast is just the love of my life. I mean, I, I, I adore doing it and it's been so much fun to get to know people uh, because a lot of people email me and with different questions and things like that. So it's been so interactive and I just love it. So thank you. Yes. So, Dr. Margaret, can you tell everybody about the podcast show and the name of your book? Sure. The name of the book is uh, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. And it's really about my huge concern that the mental health industry is missing a presentation of depression. And it's, it's really not their fault, but too many people are judging that someone is depressed if they fit the absolute criteria for classic depression. And there are nine or 10 different symptoms like depressed mood and it's noticeable and not enjoying activities that you used to enjoy and hopelessness, helplessness, sleep disturbance, appetite disturbance, those sorts of things. But I have found in my own 25, more than 25 year career, that a lot of people will come in with perfect looking lives. And the tendency is to diagnose them, if you diagnose them with anything other than being overworked, um, Mm. with anxiety. You know, maybe they have an eating disorder, maybe they have some problems with, they're taking too many benzodiazepines to calm down, if they'll admit that to you. But it's, it's so easy to miss. And, and so I, and I, and I think it's strongly linked to the suicide rate going alarmingly up internationally. So I wrote this book in order to try to describe what is this syndrome, what I call perfectly hidden depression, that is another, it's not the classic 
presentation of depression, but it, mm -hmm. in, it is in and of itself uh, a, um, a hallmark of certain kinds of depression. As far as the podcast goes, um, the podcast I started about four years ago, and it was, it was not completely altruistic on my part to start it. Uh, my book uh, had been turned down by some publishing houses, and um, the major reason was that they said, you don't have a big enough platform. You're, mm. you know, you're a psychologist in Fayetteville, Arkansas. No one knows who you are. You're not on a university uh, faculty. Mm -hmm. You know, you haven't published before. And you have to have more people that you can reach. But what, it, what was very important to me, I don't want to spend my life doing things that are meaningless. And so I thought, well, okay, you know, how can I, in a meaningful way, build a platform? And I had, I listened to a couple of podcasts and I thought, I think I could do that. And I just kind of dove into the deep end, literally after about two podcasts. Well, it's so funny to hear you talk about it this way because I I stumbled upon your podcast um, back in the winter, and I actually typed in best podcast shows for depression, and there you were at number one on our Google. Wow! Ranking. Wow! Yeah. So to hear you say, "Well, I think I could do this," just sounds so <laughs> funny because uh, I you know I came up across it m uh, many years later after it was started. Yeah. But here it is well, at gosh. number one. I'll have to Google myself. I didn't know I was that. <laughs> but I have loved doing it. Uh, I, was a, I was a jingle singer in my 20s. And so I was used to being in front of the microphone. And uh, I love using my voice. And so um, I've, just, I've just interacted with so many different kinds of people. And um, I really, I, right now, I, I'm, I'm about to move into having guests. Um, I tried that early on, and a lot of people said, well, we really like the format, that it's just kind of you picking a topic mm -hmm. and talking about the topic and maybe covering a listener email. It feels very intimate. Mm -hmm. And But I don't know. I, I think I'm, I'm going to move a little bit into some what I'm going to call self-work conversations um, because I I want people to learn from other people. I mean, I always feature other people's work in the podcast, but, but thank you for being a listener. That's great. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it's been such a huge resource uh, in my own personal life, but also uh, it's become something that we refer to on our show quite mm -hmm. often. Thank and, you. and yes, mm -hmm. our regular listeners um, in their own fun and creativity have decided to create uh, little bingo cards because we bring up specific authors and, and certain topics pretty much every time we do a mm -hmm. show. And so their game as they're listening at home is to, you know, hit those little bingo squares as you, you're brought up. And so <laughs> perfectly hidden depression and our girl crush, Dr. Margaret, have become a solid square. Well, I've never been on a bingo game, so I am absolutely <laughs> thrilled. And the people said I didn't have a platform. They obviously didn't know what they were talking no. about. <laughs> I should say the name of the silly thing, it's called the Self Work Podcast, mm -hmm. yes. Dr. Margaret Rutherford. So anyway, I thank you for mentioning it. And gosh, inclusion on a bingo game, that's, that's I know, incredible. fancy. Yeah. Yes, and, and I, I wanna launch into more of the book, obviously, because this is part of your virtual book tour. So was this, was virtual part of the plan or is this a COVID result? Hmm. No, virtual was always a part of the plan. Um, nice. Again, a lot of the people, I, I have traveled to LA once and I was supposed to go back and then that was not, um, didn't happen because of COVID. But I actually, um, 
you know, I see, I still see a full complement um, of patients every week. So to take off a month or two months, I mean, I could do it, but I would leave behind people that I see. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is uh, obviously more cost effective yeah. and it's, um, it's something that I think reaches a lot of people and, you know, gosh, you know, I've been working telehealth the last three, four months too. So I, I'm me and Zoom are like this. So, um, but I, you know, I, I would love to come and talk with people and I had some things scheduled. Come to think of it, I guess it is a little COVID related. I was a keynote speaker somewhere and then out in Colorado, I was supposed to go out. So I guess it has been somewhat, um, I just don't like to think about it in that way. I think, mm -hmm. well, let me look for the positives instead of what, you know, is maybe missing or lacking. And, but I'm hoping to certainly do that. Nice. Because I love speaking in front of people. Mm -hmm. Well, it's such a calm, soothing voice to listen to as well. Mm -hmm. It's so, it's such an assuring uh, voice for, for such a vulnerable topic. Well, well, you know, I think people, um, several people have said that my voice puts them to sleep. So they had to stop listening to it as they were driving their car. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Well, one of the things that we were excited to do is um, prior to, to having you appear today, we played the sound clip um, from the beginning of your self-work podcast so that people can become familiar with your, with your voice and also your intention. Um, so would you do us a favor and actually introduce the concept of perfectly hidden depression for listeners? I would be happy to. Um, it's, it's sort of an interesting story, I think, to talk about how I even thought of it in the first place. Because perfectly hidden depression is not a term you're going to find anywhere else, unless people have read my stuff and are commenting on it. I was literally in my, in my, um, sunroom writing my weekly blog post back in 2014 and I thought about some of these people that I was talking about a few minutes ago that mm -hmm. you know if, if when they walk in your office they, they they will deny being depressed I mean you'll ask the typical questions but what I began to notice was that these people would tell me about hard things that had happened to them even trauma that had happened to them but the way they were telling me, how they told me, was distinctly different than someone who was coming in revealing depression. Hmm. In fact, they were so constricted emotionally mm -hmm. that they would often smile as they were saying, yes, you know, my, my parents were really abusive and they'd kind of laugh. And <laughs> What I began to realize in trying to treat these people is that their way of talking about trauma was in a very nonchalant, offhanded manner. And if I actually could turn the audio down and just watch the video, they would, might look like they were telling me what they had for lunch. I mean, there was literally that kind of detachment from whatever they were saying. So that day in April of 2014, I thought, I think I'm going to write about these people because treating them is really different. And I just said, gosh, what am I going to call it? And I said, well, I'm at perfectly hidden depression. And I wrote the perfectly hidden depressed person, are you one? And it went viral. I had never had a post go viral before. And then I was writing for the Huffington Post at that point, And um, I put it on there forgetting that my email was at the bottom of the post. 
Well, I got hundreds of emails from people. Mm -hmm. I've never heard about this. It's like you're in my head. Mm -hmm. uh, what is this? Where can I find out more information? So in the subsequent couple of years, I tried to think about what is this? I began researching perfectionism. Of course, I found Dr. Renee Brown's work, which is outstanding. Um, I found the book by Terrence Real, I Don't Want to Talk About It, which was written in 1998 for actually male depression. Hmm. But I couldn't find anyone recent in the recent popular literature that linked perfectionism with depression. And yet I knew in my, in my own experience as a therapist for well over at this point, 25 years, that that did exist and that we needed to find out what it was. So I began just trying to literally, I would write down descriptions of the people that I had seen and I'd say, okay, what does he have and she have? And you know, what are these things that are common traits in between these people? What are the ways that they tell me they got to need to be invisible or need to be perfect or mm -hmm. uh, need to prove to a parent that they were going to amount to something or, or need to please a parent. Um, however they got there, it's, I began looking for the commonalities and writing about it. And the more I wrote about it, the more I was beginning to get encouragement from some author friends of mine to write a book. I had never wanted to write a book. I never planned to write a book. Um, it was not in my life game plan. And, but um, the message to me was so important that I thought, if not me, who? You know, okay, I'll write a book. Mm -hmm. And that was much easier said than done. <laughs> um, gosh, I learned so much. Uh, and well, I Go ahead. Sorry. I, I absolutely loved, I mean, it's buried much deeper into the book, but where you actually expressed your vulnerability of writing the book mm -hmm. and the perfection that came out in that process um, of, well, what if it gets published and I learn something after the fact or I forget something? Yeah. Exactly. I, I spent about a week staring at the screen mm -hmm. and I had been very diligently working away and thinking, you know, I've, I've got this, I've got this. And then all of a sudden I just got hit with the reality that I had a publisher and that this was going to be published. And I just went blank mm -hmm. thinking, I know it, it'll be three days after it's published and I'll learn something I don't know now, or some expert in perfectionism will go, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. So uh -huh. it was, I, was I, you know, it, I just felt, I was just nonplussed. I didn't know what to do. And that's when I wrote those two paragraphs. I got mm -hmm. up really early one morning and I just wrote about what I was feeling. And after that, I was fine. Yeah, and I did, I did in, include it in the book. I thought, you know, if I'm sharing with people how to be vulnerable, then I'll certainly talk about my own vulnerability. And it, it, I've been exactly right. <laughs> I've, I've learned things. People have been writing me or calling me or contacting me and saying, you, you didn't talk about ADHD or you didn't talk about bipolar two, which I did a little bit, but you didn't, you know, have you thought about how this is, you know, similar to attachment style disorders? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if that's another book, but it's certainly um, a, a, 
I'm still learning about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Well, lucky for us, because if there is a second book, we've got more resources. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you. yeah. Now, is it appropriate to ask you to sort of walk us through the characteristics and traits of someone with perfectly hidden depression? Sure, sure, sure. You know, let me get my out my handy dandy list because I can sort. These are so interrelated that sometimes mm-hmm. I get them a little. I forget where I am. Is it number five or number six? Um, first of all, uh, the person is highly perfectionistic, which is probably, um, you know, pretty. We've already talked about that, but it's not the kind of perfectionism that is simple striving for excellence. It's literally perfectionism that is fueled by shame and fear. Um, It's fueled by the sense of, I am not a worthy person. I don't have any worth if I don't get this accomplished, if I don't meet the expectations of others. So you have a constant critical voice in your head that says you're not doing enough and you're gonna get found out and all this kind of thing. So that's really different. The second one is to demonstrate a very heightened sense of responsibility. Um, These are people who they don't say no. And when they say yes, they, uh, which is frequently, they don't take anything off their plate when they've already added something to it. They just, they get up earlier, they stay up later. They they just are constantly weighed down by responsibility. as we've already talked about a little bit, they also detach from painful emotions by being very overly analytical. It's an interesting factoid about the book that people will come up to me and say, oh, I've read your book. It's really, I enjoyed it. And I said, well, thank you. So what'd you think about the exercises? Oh, I didn't do those. <laughs> and I said, hmm. said, I would love to suggest to you that you go back now that you sort of have a mental picture of where you're going, Mm -hmm. because the the exercises are where the emotional work is. And this is very, very frightening to people who've not done it. Um, These folks worry a lot and they, they need a lot of control and that can sort of be a cycle, meaning, okay, so if I'm worried about something, but then I take control of it, but then I tend to get anxious and overloaded, which worries me more, which then, you know, then I get more in control. So it's just this cycle that, you know, is a kind of a three-pronged cycle of worry and being in control and then overload, you know. Um, they use accomplishment to feel valuable. These are not people who are gonna tell you, um, you know, that they're a kind person and that's why they, you know, have value. They're going to say, well, I, the fundraiser I ran had a hundred thousand, raised a hundred thousand dollars now, but they'll be quick also to say, but you know, that had nothing to do with me. That was all the people that worked for me. I mean, again, you know, there's sort of the sense of, oh yeah, I know that I had to reach that mark, but nobody else is going to see that kind of need in me. Hmm. Um, they focus on the well-being of others and then don't allow anyone into their inner world. And what I mean by that is these people, their friends will say, gosh, Kelly is the best friend. I mean, she is there and, and sincerely there. But then they'll say, but you know, I don't know Kelly very well. I don't really, I, do you know anything about our parents? I mean, you know, it's, they sort of stay unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, 
again, entangled in that or mixed up in that is to uh, discount personal hurt. Um, again, you know, I talked about it a few minutes ago that literally they will say to me, oh, you know, um, what happened to me has, it's just so many people have so much in their lives that is hurtful and I'm blessed and I'm lucky. And, mm. and then you learn, you know, they were sexually abused by a grandfather for years or something but they will discount and deny that uh, that goes along with staying very overly analytical um, they believe strongly in counting their blessings but not like people who just you know have what is that called an attitude of gratitude they they don't just stay grateful they stay ashamed that they would think about anything else being wrong in their lives that that is a shameful act and so you're always talking about your blessings and that it's your job to be thankful for those versus, you know, even blessings have an underbelly. They have something that's hard, you know, mm -hmm. about them. And so that's okay to admit I have four kids. I have four great kids. They're all healthy, but that's four lunches and four trips to the dentist and four, you know, there, there are things that are hard about that. Um, there's one about uh, that's again sort of evident. Um, these people are are going to be very successful professionally. We reward hard work. We reward perfection. We reward resilience. Um, but their emotional intimacy skills are usually poor. Um, they can be angry if it's about control, but they don't do very many other emotions, and so they could maybe they've been attracted to someone who's somewhat narcissistic and wants an overly responsible, you know, shaming kind of person in their lives. Maybe they've been attracted to someone who's very under-functioning and wants an over-functioning person in their lives. So sometimes they can be attracted to people or someone who also wants life to look perfect and it stays pretty superficial. But I have, I have, um, been contacted by people who say, you know, I've been married to my husband or wife for seven or eight years and I've never seen them cry, mm -hmm. even when something bad happened. And I, I don't feel like I really know them very well. So those relationships exist as well. And then there's a 10th. And as a clinician, I kind of fought for this one uh, because I did not want people to think that if you could identify with or you experience perfectly hidden depression, that you just kind of need to quit. Okay, well, that's what's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. um, often there are true, classically clinical diagnoses that can be made. Maybe you do have an eating disorder. Maybe you do have panic disorder or social anxiety disorder or something. Uh, maybe you do struggle with addiction. So it's important to note that the syndrome or the group of behaviors and beliefs that make up perfectly hidden depression, from my perspective, um, do not, um, they, they can coexist with actual psychological uh, diagnoses of different mm -hmm. kinds. Mm -hmm. It's, oh, I, I could talk so much and then I lose my words about all of this because it's so, um, I think it's just so helpful for people to be able to put a label on something as much as I, we, you know, our world is, is seeing that labels can also hurt. They yeah. can also be the thing that help us identify 
and, and feel like we can breathe. You know, I had a local clinician um, tell me, walk up to me and goes, you know, we, most of us who have experience know about this, but you've put a name to it. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree with you. And I, the, you know, people will say clinicians, other clinicians have written to me and said, well, how am I supposed to know this if, if they're not telling me what's going on? How am I supposed to be able to uh, detect what seems almost undetectable? And, I, mm-hmm. and my answer to that um, is it's your awareness that it exists. You know, it's kind of like if someone walks in and you're not, oh, well, I guess we'll use COVID as the most appropriate right now. You know, you're aware of some of the symptoms of COVID-19, but they don't show the classic symptoms, but you're aware that there could be others that you have to dig a little deeper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your awareness goes up. And so what I'm wanting for the mental health profession to do is for their awareness to, to not, um, to not, uh, um, not disavow, to not um, just sort of uh, quickly say, oh, well, you're just overworked or you're, you're too tired or you're not sleeping enough and discount. That's what I was looking for and discount the mm-hmm. fact that these people underneath are really suffering. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had a guy, he's, he's mentioned in the book that said he'd gone to a psychiatrist and he'd been handed a typical depression inventory, which he answered as someone with perfectly hidden depression would do. And, you know, are you hopeless? Do you feel hopeless? No. Do you feel, you know, no. And he tried to die by suicide about three weeks later and the psychiatrist actually came to his room and was a little off put by the fact that the guy mm-hmm. had, you know, been in his office and uh, said, well, but you, you didn't say you were depressed. And the man who contacted me said, sir, said, you asked me the wrong questions. Mm-hmm. If you had asked me, if you were helpless, would you reveal that? And the answer was no. Then you can begin to see that there's more to me than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. And here I am smiling and laughing and talking about showing pictures of my kids and saying, I don't really know why I'm here, you know, that kind of thing. So they give clues as to their discomfort with the process. Mm-hmm. I think it was huge that you pointed out that so much of this comes from shame. Yes. So much. Every time I read a page in that book, it struck me that there's so much deep pain within these people yes. uh, to the point where they don't want to or don't feel that they can express it or that they would be heard. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. A lot of them grew up in families where they were either chastised or ridiculed for expressing any kind of painful emotion um, or they, they simply wasn't allowed. One guy just really, goodness, and he, he just was beaming as he told me this story. But his mother had died when he was three or four. His father got rid of all the pictures of his mom, wouldn't let the children speak of his mom, and married very quickly and wanted him to call her mom. And it was like this woman just vanished. Yeah. And he was shamed, as you put it. Yeah. He was shamed for sometimes saying, but I miss my mom, you know, and no, you don't, you know, you've got a new mom now, that kind of thing. And so you learn after a while that there is no place safe. 
mm-hmm. that no one wants to, no one will be available. And actually you're less than if you, if you um, dare and if you risk to reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, Margaret, yes. Would it be fair to say too, that um, this could apply to people who don't necessarily lose a parent by death, but may lose a parent through divorce? Oh, yes. And in the same situation, they're not allowed to say their name. They're not allowed to call them. They're not allowed and so on. Okay. You betcha. You betcha. Yeah. There, are, there, are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of ways around the barn is what we'd say in Arkansas. <laughs> but there, there are a lot of uh, that old you know, roads to Rome. Um, it, what I didn't want to do in this book was particularly, and actually the publisher guided me about this too, I always wanted to use the stories of real people who contacted me or who I'd worked with, with their permission, and anonymously, of course. But um, so there, there are about 30 stories in the book mm-hmm. of people who contacted me, said they really wanted to talk with me, they wanted to help. And I tried to talk about in those stories how you could get there rather than just having a sort of a dry chapter on etiology of perfectly hidden oppression you know it just I thought people's stories were so much more poignant I found in reading the book that the way that you write it where you offer technical I'll call it technical information or the factual information what is it what are the symptoms that kind of thing then you follow it up with this is a story so that if I wasn't too sure what your technical stuff was I got it when I read the story and mm-hmm. then from that, you have your reflection on it. Mm-hmm. And then from that, you also go into on page 58, 59, 60, I think it's 60, 61, you go into the perfectly hidden depression questionnaire. Right. And I'm purposely bringing this up because Kelly's got the book here, but <sighs> we, we, want, we want people to, be, to listen to this show and be glued to you. We want them to, for them to have a girl crush on you too. No, (laughs) we want them to go get the book so that they can understand. Because I think if they don't understand, they could dismiss and then miss this. And and, and you've got to remember, these people are very accustomed to dismissing. Yes. I mean, that is their go-to. That is their MO. I'm not important. What goes on with me is just, you know, I don't want to talk about myself. And so that's right. I mean, you're, you're right on target there. And I think that, um, in fact, I didn't really want to publish the questionnaire anywhere but my own website. But um, I did about a week ago. I, I went on and published it in Psychology Today. And it's had almost 80,000 views. Yes. yes. Which is that's, huge in Psychology that's right. Today. So I do think the questionnaire helps people sort of, oh, it gives you an operational sort of definition of what I'm talking about, of critical shaming inner voice. I mean, how, what does that look like? It's, it's not long at all. And it's not, I want to make sure people know, I'm not a researcher. It's not empirically validated. It, all, it comes all from my own personal experience with people like this. And actually, I could add to it by now. Again, one of those things that you, you know, I wish I'd said this. I wish I'd asked that. But um, so. That's a great point. And of course, I would, I would 
very much appreciated, be honored if people uh, read the book. It is available now in three forms. It's available in a paperback, it's available in audiobook, and it's available in Kindle. Um, and the and again, if if your if your listeners do get it, I really want to encourage them to go through the exercises mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the book is one thing to be read and just sort of you ingest the material. Oh, okay. Well, this makes sense. Well, that explains that. But to do the healing work mm -hmm. is incredibly uh, frightening. I mean, it's it's the fear of giving up this persona mm -hmm. is so deep that it's really hard to do but I, the people I have worked with and I will I, I, this is not a dramatic thing to say I can tell you that I would say 75% of the people that I have personally seen who've come in because they have identified with perfectly hidden depression 75% of them told me that they had a plan to die by suicide when they walked in my door mm -hmm. and so um, and I've been contacted by parents of teenagers who have died by suicide and they looked like great young men and women, really successful, um, you know, so, um, I, I do think it's a, uh, it's, it's why I've been so, I've, I've dedicated six years of my life to this. And so I am, um. I welcome thoughts and comments and mm. um, any kind of feedback that people have for me. Well, that's obvious in your podcast show, but yeah. like you make it such a warm and welcoming conversation, mm -hmm. um, you know, for people to listen to, but feel that they're a part of and then hosting, uh, you know, uh, not, not patients, but listeners questions um, sure. is hugely valuable. Um, can I, I would like to just put it out there and say this, but I'd like you to to maybe encourage people to do it. I'd say buy the book and give a copy to your therapist. Yes. So that because this is something that is still so fresh and so new, and we can't expect our therapists to be professionals in every single area. No. So I would suggest, you know, when people hit uh, or go and find it on the web, your website and stuff to buy two copies and take it to their therapist and say, I'm going through these, these um, checklists. I'm going through this book and doing these exercises. Would you be able to read this and go through this with me so that their therapy um, is more in tune with, uh, properly? In fact, some people have told me they've done just that. Maybe not bought the book, but they took in a podcast recording or they yeah. took a, a, you know, but certainly since the book's been out about six months, I have, I have heard people are doing that. Um, I, you know, I think as, as you come out of graduate school or you come out of whatever your marriage and family therapy program or your, uh, your common LPC or whatever, you know, you, you want to you want to try to not make mistakes and you're trying to diagnose people carefully and and so you do tend to rely heavily on the criteria as they are stated in our diagnostic manual and i can certainly remember doing it myself in fact the very first story in the book is a story of a woman that i had diagnosed with anxiety and then i got this call um back on my beeper remember beepers and um, I 
I, I've never done this since. I don't really know why I did it that afternoon, but this woman's husband was calling me mm-hmm. and saying, I think there's something wrong. And would you go by? And I thought, well, that's kind of odd, but okay. And he told me how to get into the house if she wasn't outside. And I, I walked in this house that was, you know, there were dishes drying in the sink. The living room had been picked up. I mean, their children's toys were in bins. Everything was quiet. And of course, I'd never been in the house. And I went down the hallway and sure enough, she was there with a bottle of vodka, I think, and a huge bottle of pills that she'd taken. And I called 911, of course, and she did live. And in fact, has turned her entire life around. But I remember when the the paramedics left, I just sat there and I thought, I would never have diagnosed her with depression. Mm-hmm. I, she didn't say one word about thinking about killing herself. And it, I wish I had thought at that time, I need to do some, I need to, put this in a book or something because I've never seen it. I don't even remember talking about perfectionism in graduate school. Mm. And so um, we might have, but I don't remember it. And I didn't at that point. I just became more personally sort of attuned to it. Um, I I got out sort of my, well, I won't say her name, but um, Natalie, I think is what I call her in the book. I got out my Natalie ruler and tried to, you know, assess, is this another Natalie that I need to be mm-hmm. careful about? And it wasn't until um, I, re- I wrote that post, and actually I thought about Natalie when I wrote the post, that I thought, well, gosh, maybe I do need to look into this and write about it. I think it's really important that people hear that some people present with the clean room, with the perfectly manicured lawn, um, where the physical stuff has to look perfect, um, and that some people have to have that perfection at work, but not at home. That's and that right. sometimes like you differentiate in the book that some people don't present perfect perfection mm-hmm. in all areas. So mm-hmm. they have to hang in there if they're listening to this show and think, no, you need to sit back down and keep listening to Dr. Margaret because some of them have quite the mess in their home. Yeah. And, well, in, in fact, there was, I've had p- people tell me often, I'm, you know, I read your book and I would never have called myself a perfectionist, but I guess I am. And they did, they don't call themselves a perfectionist because they don't think they ever did anything perfectly. Oh, perfectionists are people who do everything perfectly. I never meet my own standards. So how could I be a perfectionist? Right. right. So their solution to the problem has become the problem. I mean, they, they, um, uh, they don't put themselves in that category at all. And you're right. That's in fact a really good point to make. I can't remember making it in the book, but I'm glad you, you remember. Did. Oh, good. I think you good. did. Yeah. Good, good. Because no, I mean, sometimes these people, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not a cookie cutter. This isn't cookie cutter. This is just like if you have one person who has panic disorder and another person who has panic disorder, those two people are not necessarily going to look alike. Mm-hmm. They may have, they may share some traits, but everything's on a spectrum. Um, and, but, but I think if, if there is a solid and most common trait of all of the people that would 
would be able to identify with this is shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, there was a supervisor I had many, many years ago that I thought was an awful person, really. <laughs> uh, I thought he was kind of narcissistic and, and he may have been a little bit, but he said to our class one time, shame is a helpful emotion if it lasts for 10 seconds and it leads to a change of behavior. Mm-hmm. And I, I flat out thought he was wrong. I thought, oh, that's not right. Shame, you know, shame's a good thing. It's a, it's a good conscience, you know. No, it's not. Shame is a very destructive uh, emotion because it, it eats away at who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, there's another thing that we really haven't talked about. And that is that these people, you know, when I said they discount or deny these, these emotional events and experiences, there's a, there's a psychological term called compartmentalization and we all do it. We all, if you're healthy, you compartmentalize all the time. You've had an upsetting phone call with a good friend and you still have to go to work and you get your work done or you have a child that um, is, is, you know, you just found out, you just found some weed in their bedroom and you've got that on your mind that you have to, but you still got to get things going. And so that's called compartmentalization. We put something sort of in a box and decide, okay, I'm going to put that box over here in my mind and I'll get back to it when I can. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the problem with people with perfectly hidden depression. They don't get back to it. They Mm -hmm. shove that box so far into the background of their, you know, for lack of a better term, their emotional closet, that they, they want to forget it's there. They don't want to bring it up. They don't want, you know, they don't want to get triggered. And so a lot of the times, even they'll not realize how much shame they carry because all of that is stuffed away. And as, and what happens is as soon as they come into therapy and they begin unpacking some of that stuff, that's when they're going to be aware of the shame. Mm-hmm. Well, and that leads a lot to a great, huge need to control everything then. You betcha. If, I, if I'm going to put my shame and compartmentalize it over here, then I have to control all the people around me so right. that they don't confront me, ask me about it, hit a trigger. They have to control the other person that's and right. what they're thinking and what they're even going to say to you. That's right. Uh, Monica's closet on Friends. If you were ever a Friends fan, oh yeah, that's right. I, 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 not, not I was really. raising my child while Friends was on, and so I didn't watch it much, but I do remember that. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about. Oh, I had a woman. Um, actually, she was so eloquent. I used a lot of her phraseology in the book because she had come in to see me for this, and and uh, I kept asking her, "Do you mind if I use that? <laughs> Do you mind if I?" Um, and she worked from home um, and she said that one of the things she was very aware of the more we worked is that in her work conversations, she always had to be one step ahead. She always had to look like she already had the answer at her fingertips before the question was asked. Mm-hmm. So there's so much pressure um, and such a lack of spontaneity or just, Oh gosh, I made a mistake. Well, you know, I was or wrong about learn. that. Yeah, just learn. to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a great lack of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And there's a great lack of curiosity and a lack Mm -hmm. of playfulness then Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they have towards themselves and towards anyone else, whether it's work, friends, neighborhood, Children. children, partners. You know, they, they may, um, it's interesting. I was kind of going, well, do they not do it with friends? Um, you know, the, the researchers talk about the three different kinds of perfectionism. Maybe this would be helpful to talk about. And the three distinctions are self-oriented perfectionism, which is kind of the person you're talking about that Mm -hmm. just has high standards for herself or himself and really never lets go of those. Then there is other oriented perfectionism, which you expect other people to meet those same standards. Um, But then there's one that actually is the most dangerous one for depression and for suicide. And that is what's called socially prescribed perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And what that's talking about is frantically, but you can't let anybody see you're frantic, trying to always meet the expectations of other people. Mm -hmm. And if you raised, um, I'll go back to my $100,000 mark, I don't know why. If you raised $100,000 for some kind of nonprofit last year, they'll come up to you and go, this year you gotta be the chair again, because boy, I bet you're gonna make more than that. And you just, you know, and then you go, oh, well, you know, it was just lucky and I had a great team. But sure enough, you've already bought into Mm -hmm. this idea that you'll make $110,000 this year. Mm -hmm. Or your supervisor at work gives you more to do and you don't say, gosh, I got to delegate here. You just get it done. And it is a, what the researchers talk about is that you're not in control of the expectations. And so you're just running and running and running and more pressured, more pressured. And the better you do, the better you're expected to do. And it is exhausting and lonely and despairing. Mm -hmm. And destructive. And destructive. Is it, um, I, I always kind of go back to, is it appropriate? Because you can make this decision uh, to go over the spectrum questionnaire of perfectly hidden depression, or would sure. you rather just list it on, on the show site? Uh, sure, we can go, we, we can go through that. I, I, I also want to talk a little about though, how you get better. Yes, so, absolutely. You know, so I, you know, which would y'all rather do? I'm uh, if either. you've got time, we want both. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. And, and I say this because we're such big advocates on both of our podcast shows about learning to ask good questions. Mm-hmm. And I really love that you illustrated um, the psychiatrist and this gentleman who tried to take his life. And, you know, he said, you didn't ask me the right question. That's what we're trying to constantly educate listeners to do for healthy communication. Um, and this checklist, when we read it for the first mm-hmm. time, it, we, you know, we sat there together and just said, brilliant, mm-hmm. just brilliant over and over again to every single one of them. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, again, I'm being the perfectionist I tend to be. I see things now that I wish that I had worded a little bit differently, or I've learned some other things that I think would complete it more. But again, it, That's it's addition to an addition to, <laughs> but I, I, you know, gosh, I must have puzzled over that for several months. And, mm-hmm. um, about what would best describe in just very meaningful everyday behaviors, what would describe someone who was 
was gearing toward this or was somewhere somewhere on that spectrum. Mm-hmm. So would you like to read it or would you like us to? And you can kind of elaborate. I don't have it in front of me. So if well, you, don't, you can go I've ahead. I've got you uh, covered there. <laughs> I've got the book, but it would take me a while to find it. It's all good. I'm going to so, take a little sip of tea. If that's yeah, right. it's, it's on page 58. If you do, ah. you want to follow along with your own book. <laughs> um, so I think this is fantastic. Listeners, you know, if, if you're tuning in, watching, listening, however you're here, um, this is a great thing to, to listen to for yourself, uh, but also to sit with a loved one if you suspect, you know, during mm-hmm. this conversation that they might be struggling with something like that, uh, to open up dialogue. So uh, we'll start with number one, if that's sure. good. It says, do you struggle with confiding in others, especially about your real life difficulties and problems? Again, um, you know, these people don't reveal much. In fact, we were talking about those boxes that you put things in. One woman wrote me, she wrote me an email and she said, frankly, Margaret, if I don't have a big enough box, I build a bigger box. Hmm. So it's just constant hiding and, and not letting other people know anything about you. Mm-hmm. Number two is, do you obsess about things looking perfect, both for yourself and through others' eyes? So that's kind of trying to talk about that self-oriented perfectionism and then the socially prescribed perfectionism. Although, again, those are, I tried to keep the book not real clinical. I mean, you know, it's just, I, this was not a book that I, I wasn't gearing it necessarily toward professionals. It's very um, accessible. Yeah. I mean, you know, so this was an attempt at sort of talking about that. Number three is, do you avoid talking to your partner or friends about feeling hurt by them or about a growing resentment you might have? No way are you going to talk to them about Mm -hmm. that. Um, Number four, do you have trouble sleeping or turning your mind off at night? Um, A lot of these people actually come into therapy because of sleep disturbance. And they don't understand it. Why can't I, you know, I take melatonin, I do this, I do that. And what they're doing is they're going over and over in their heads during the day, the the details of conversations. Um, They're obsessing about what they need to do tomorrow. Um, And so these folks do not know how to just turn off. They Mm -hmm. had a distinct problem. In fact, I remember one woman that came to mind, she goes, you know, I just... I I hate sleeping so much. I just stay mm-hmm. awake as long as possible because I can, I, that's when I'm industrious is when I'm staying. I hate sleeping, she said. So mm-hmm. number five is, do you have trouble admitting when you're feeling overwhelmed? Big yes. Um, in fact, again, that's sort of the guy's question of you didn't ask me the right question. You know, I wouldn't admit feeling overwhelmed. Do you push yourself to get the job done regardless of the cost to you? And what we are trying to address with this question is this idea that, you know, you don't even have much of a running dialogue with yourself about any kind of cost to you. Mm-hmm. You're never, you never float to the top of your list. Um, you consider that self-centered. Mm-hmm. You consider that selfish. And so you don't, you, you, you're, you may not even be aware of really what you want and you're just meeting the expectations of other people. Wouldn't that come a little bit, Dr. Margaret, from people shaming you in the past if you actually tried to do that? You bet. You bet. Of course. Um, 
Number seven is do you spend most of your time analyzing or problem solving rather than expressing emotion? I think we've already talked about that a good deal. Mm -hmm. Number eight, do you respond to the needs of your friends even when it can shortchange your own? Again, there's that sense of sacrifice, of I'm not as important as other people. Um, I, uh, one of my more popular blog posts about this is, you know, the difference between being self-aware, self um, selfish, and self-centered. And, you know, I think self-awareness is what's really important, but the, these folks are so out of tune with emotions that they, they just don't know how to be very self-aware. They can learn how to be self-aware, and that's okay. what's exciting to watch. Um, number nine is, did you grow up in a family where feelings of sadness or pain were avoided or where you were criticized or punished for expressing them? And that's very common. It's one of the more common things that are checked yes. Um, in fact, I guess we should talk, you know, pertaining to your question, um, that this is a spectrum. And I suggest that the higher you score, the more you're likely to be, you know, that this kind of issue is a problem for you. But, you know, you might kind of be in the middle. You don't do some of these. You do do some of these. And, you know, that just means that, um, you know, you've you got a little bit of the problem, but not as much. Um, number 10, have you ever been hurt emotionally, physically, or sexually and told no one? Or if you did tell someone, were you not believed or supported? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I can promise you I've had people uh, share with me stories that would rank up there as trauma in any trauma therapist's, uh, mm -hmm. on any trauma therapist scale, but they have... No, it was just not talked about. It was ignored. I had one woman tell her family um, that she wrote them a letter saying that her older brother had abused her for years. In fact, she couldn't have children herself because of it, because of so much uh, physical damage. And her family just kind of just didn't respond and just went under the rug. And that was that. So wow. she's had a huge struggle. She's better. Um, number 11, did you grow up in a family or are you still experiencing a family in which you felt as if you had to meet defined expectations rather than being allowed to be yourself? One of the pathways of two perfectly hidden depression are, are people who are either very enmeshed with their parent, meaning that there's really no boundary between the two of them, appropriate boundary, and it became their job as a child to meet the expectations of that parent and to make that parent happy. And that's what I'm really trying to address in this question is, you know, how, how much could your parents see you as an individual and not as a byproduct of them or some sort of reflection of them? And how much did they uh, need you to be who they needed you to be? This was one of mine. I, ha I would have to say yes to this. Mm -hmm. Number 12, do you like to have control of a situation if you're going to be involved? These are folks, well, if I'm gonna be, if I'm gonna be at the meeting, I might as well chair the meeting. If I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna, and it's almost a way. Actually, you know what? What I found is that when they back away from the responsibility, sometimes they don't know what to do. Uh, I find this in myself because I have some social anxiety for sure. And so the way I hide that is that I always give myself a role, like at a football tailgate, I will take food and I will pass it around and everything. If my husband's mm -hmm. take it, if my husband takes it from me, 
I just kind of stand there like, well, yeah. what am I supposed to do? <laughs> I get very uncomfortable or I can get very yeah. uncomfortable. So that's, that's on me. Um, at least I know it. Do you have a growing sense that it's becoming harder to maintain an organized structure in your life? I added this one because as I talked and interviewed, if I talked with and interviewed people, they did say to me, I thought it would get better as I got older, but it's actually gotten worse mm -hmm. because there's less and less I can truly control. <laughs> and so, yeah, don't I know yeah. it? And so, you know, it's, um, for example, they feel better as a parent of a young child than they do the parent of a teenager. You know, they're beginning to lose that sense of mm -hmm. being in control. And so, um, this was, I, I was kind of surprised by this when I added it because of some of the comments I thought. And then this was tied into it. If so, do you feel anxiety or even panic? Um, so um, the next 15 is, do you tend to not cry or rarely cry? Um, I mentioned my mom. I think, I don't know if I ever saw my mother cry, ever. And she would just tell me, I don't like crying. I'm not a crier. Mm. Mm but I know she was um, abused by her mother verbally. Um, 16, are you considered ultra responsible, the one who could always be counted on by your coworkers or family and friends? Kind of a, yeah, we, yep. we've got that established. Do you believe that taking time for yourself is selfish? We've already kind of talked about that. Mm -hmm. Do you dislike it when people consider themselves victims when they claim that it's not their fault when something goes wrong? Yeah, I, I added this one because I have heard this phrase so much about, well, only victims go into therapy. I would never consider therapy because all uh -huh. therapy does is you go back and blame everybody for your what your problems are. And my problems are my own. And, you know, I'm, I've got a lot. Of, there come the blessings again. And yeah. so I added this one because there is such a tendency to... Mm, even judge harshly people who might say this is wrong or you know this has really been hard for me again there's there can be a, a bit of judgment about that that um, they just don't have a lot of empathy for that number 19 did you grow up being taught that you were supposed to handle painful things on your own that asking for help reflected weakness yeah definitely Number 20, do you strongly believe in focusing on the positives in your life or counting your blessings? We've talked about that. Number 21, do you have a critical nagging inner voice telling you that you're not good enough or that you could have tried harder, even though you accomplished your goal? That kind of goes back to what we were saying. These They wouldn't call themselves a perfectionist because even though other people are going, God, you just did great. Go, well, even I've said it myself in this, well, you know, thank you for calling that brilliant, but you know, I could have done this. Or I could have mm -hmm. I do it too. Mm -hmm. uh, constantly, <laughs> constantly working on yourself. Oh goodness. I'll get there. <laughs> um, number 22, do you outwardly seem hopeful and energetic while at times you struggle with a sense of being trapped? Um, what this is about is all the musts and shoulds and oughts and have tos in your life that you get more and more trapped by following those rules that are in your, that you have established or either held onto in your life. And 
the older you get, the more complicated your life gets, the more complex your life gets, the more you could go, well, I can't do that. Well, no, I can't do that. Ooh, that, I, that one I'd never do. And your life just can become smaller and smaller and smaller mm. and more lonely. Um, okay, and the last one. Do you make lists of tasks to get done during the day? And if they are not completed, do you feel frustrated like a failure? Um, all right, I'm also guilty of this. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I feel like a failure, but I have been known a lot to add to the list things that I've already done and accomplished. <laughs> so you can tick them off? No, I can tick them off. Oh, oh, yeah. oh see, I, see, I forgot to put that on there. And um, But yeah, and then some people will tell me, oh gosh, if I don't get, you know, I, I don't know how to prioritize. Everything is important. Nothing is more, more or less important. It's all important. It's all vital. Or here comes the shame. You should have gotten all this done. You should have, mm -hmm. you know, you could have. So. Can I ask a question about how you go about having the conversation with some patients to discover that it is perfectly hidden depression? Um, like, do you outright do the questionnaire with them or are you, you know, okay. Um, no, that blow them away. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is one of the things I found fascinating because I've, I've played your podcast for many, many loved ones and friends, um, which I guess are one and the same. That was redundant. But uh, <laughs> some of them, and not to name names, have listened to the checklist and, you know, they're going along and they have their uncomfortable laugh of, yep, yep, yep. You know, and they're racking up their, their points and then they look at me and they go, well, isn't that everyone? Exactly. And I'm, I'm, exactly. I'm just, I'm, I don't know what to say. I have also heard that. And mm -hmm. Isn't this the right way to live? Isn't this the mm -hmm. same thing as, as, uh, in fact, one woman wrote me and said, you are, um, you are pathologizing someone who's just trying to live a mm -hmm. good productive life and who cares about other people. And, um, you know, it was a rule follower and some, and some people have told me I'm pathologizing and sorry for the people who are Myers-Briggs people, but I think it's INFJ, mm -hmm. the INFJs of the world. You're saying there's something wrong with them. I'm not saying something's wrong with them. I'm saying that there could be a deeper problem <laughs> that is there. Um, I don't really, I, I've, I've read about an INFJ, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not a Myers-Briggs expert by the stretch of imagination. So, but you're exactly right. I, mm -hmm. I've heard that exact same thing. And the answer to that, of course, is absolutely not. Not much like that. Yeah. Um, and so, but that is the, that is the standard that they hold for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I know we definitely want to spend time knowing how people can move through this and help themselves. And, and one of the things that you had said in uh, later on in the book is about that you have to feel it or that you end up living it uh, subconsciously. And that just, I love the way that that was worded because we've always said you can't heal it till you feel it. Um, oh, and same thing. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, so direction. I actually stole that from, well, I mean, I gave him credit in the book, but that was something that was in a story that Terrence Real had in his book mm -hmm. that a client of his said, you mean doc, if I don't feel it, I live it. And he goes, yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. So I loved that too. It was very powerful for me, mm -hmm. very simple and very powerful in its simplicity. Um, you know, uh, gosh, I've watched hundreds of people try to make the decision on whether or not 
they can risk emotionally. Um, and it's, it's not an easy decision to make. It's, that's, that's why in a therapist, you want someone or friend or whatever, a trusted uh, person, you want to feel like they can just be there with you and not try to solve the problem, but just be in your pain um, and with you. And so um, to do a self-help book around this, that was one of my struggles, actually. I thought, you know, in fact, when I did the book, when I, when I conceptualized the book, I was just describing this thing, this perfectly hidden depression. It didn't even occur to me to put in a healing strategy. Hmm. It, to me, it was so complicated. Oh. And so the new Harbinger just looked at me and said, well, um, we won't buy the book if there's not a healing strategy. <laughs> and by the way, you have two weeks. So well done. So, Okay. <laughs> so I sat down after I cried a little bit. Um, I sat down and thought, what do I do with everybody? And surely I could hang, if, if I could get that structure in my head, um, then I could begin to fit what I did with perfectionists in there or people with uh, perfectly in depression. So I came up with five stages and they're sort of cute, which I didn't really like, but they also told me to make it marketable, which is not, mm -hmm. a, not very important to me, but it was to yeah. them. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and rightfully so, they sell books. Um, but it, first you have to be conscious of the problem. You have to be aware that your perfectionism isn't always your, you know, a great strategy that it, mm -hmm. it has some definite, um, uh, it, it will, it will help, it will, it will keep you trapped and it will keep you engaged in this pressured, really almost chaotic environment that doesn't look chaotic at all. Yeah, it's, it's so, ironically unproductive. Yes, yes. And you know, there's a lot of perfectionists who also procrastinate, um, oh. incredible amount because they're afraid it's not going to be perfect. Um, and so uh, that takes that, that chapter really talks about a lot of awareness and mindfulness and how you begin to become aware of the ramifications of something like that. The next chapter is called um, commitment. And I've already discussed that um, there's a lot of fear uh, that has to be challenged. And there's a lot of lack of permission at, because of the way you were reared. But also what's been my um, observation is that someone will go, okay, I'm going to do this. And I'll say, all right, I want you to, you know, start with something small that you just think you can do in an imperfect fashion. And they'll come back and they say, well, um, I painted my house. <laughs> I'm like, you did what? <laughs> or, or I, um, oh, I don't know. I, they did this huge thing and then they got burned out and they said, well, I, I just couldn't do it. And I said, why didn't you like paint your dog dog's house or something? Yeah. You know, to start with something doable mm -hmm. because people with perfectionism want to get it over with. They, this should, this shouldn't mm -hmm. be taking me this long. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And so you have to slow people down and realize the, com the commitment has to be to very steady progress. Um, 
The third stage, these stages commingle. The third stage is called confrontation. And that's about a very sort of traditional cognitive behavioral therapy um, approach, which is you, you try to list out and identify the rules by which you're living your life. Uh, again, we've talked about it, the must, oughts, shoulds, and which ones really apply and which ones don't apply. Mm -hmm. or you don't want them to apply anymore. They're just not helpful. And so that whole chapter is about that. The fourth chapter or the fourth stage is about connection. And this is probably one of the more difficult um, stages uh, because it's about, I, I use a technique called a trauma timeline. Mm -hmm. And it's going back with a lot of self-compassion and acknowledging what happened in your life that was both beneficial and helpful and soul building, S-O-U-L building, and what was not and what was hurtful and what tended to set you up for further hurt on down the road. But you do this, you know, at different ages and people draw and they write and they paint and they do, they do all kinds of things with this. But what happens is you begin to see patterns of, gosh, if that hadn't happened when I was four, I probably wouldn't have done that when I was 14. And I certainly might not have made that choice when I was 25. So things start getting connected. And again, you have to have the same compassion for yourself that you would have for someone you care about. And that's really hard. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth stage is just change. I mean, fifth stage is change because I'm a huge advocate for the idea that you get, you get a lot from insight, understanding something. I mean, someone who reads the book and doesn't do the exercises will have more insight into themselves, mm -hmm. but where you get hope is through behavior change. Mm -hmm. And so I list very distinctly things to just try, just my ideas of my own, um, of, each, each one of the traits and what you can do to begin to jostle that a little bit and actually start changing your behavior and making different choices and trying, uh, revealing an emotion all for size. I mean, just whatever it is. So uh, that chapter was kind of fun to write, really. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, it was, it was an under pressure situation because mm -hmm. as just as, you know, just a reader, they're so eloquently laid out um, and then also refer back to some of the exercises if you're feeling stuck mm. or questioning or or needing, you know, further reflection. Well, well, that didn't happen in two weeks. I mean, I just had to get the proposal to them. You know, I had to get this outline sort of thing to them. Okay. And, and then I began to fill in the, fill in the gaps. So, mm. yeah, <laughs> in I, fact, I remember my best friend flew in. I was just freaking out over the um, emotional connection part and, um, not knowing how to write it. And she sat down with me for a full weekend and just said, she just kept asking me questions and answering something in herself. And then we just literally, I mean, I should have called that Dina's chapter because that, that chapter was really, I couldn't have got through that chapter without a lot of guidance from her. Oh. She was, her language was much better than mine about that. Hmm. It, it's wonderful. And it's, I think it's done so gently for people who, who are taking her making that commitment that you asked them to make to do the exercises. Well, I, I had some trepidation about uh, guiding people to do work that 
and, it, and it's all through the book. If this is getting too hard, if you're getting mm -hmm. overwhelmed, go to a therapist. I mean, and I had some, uh, in fact, I was reading an article about complex PTSD the other day, and I thought, gosh, I should have said something about that. Because, you know, if you have that amount of trauma in your life, you really shouldn't do this work by yourself. Um, it's really almost contraindicated. So, um, but I, I, I mentioned it enough. I mean, you know, in fact, I had one, one, crit one critical thing on Goodreads said, about every other page, she's got an exercise and then says, don't do this if it's too upsetting. So anyway. Um, oh, it's very responsible. Well, that's, you know, I, I'm a first olive clinician. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to, I don't want anybody to get re-victimized reading a book. Mm -hmm. So I'm um, pretty dedicated to that. Mm -hmm. But you asked me a few minutes ago how I started with people. I always start as slowly as possible mm -hmm. with someone like this. And I will say, wow, you just sitting here is a big deal, isn't it? And they go, yeah, I didn't really, I was out in the waiting room and thinking about leaving. And I say, well, and one of the first things I say to them is, I'm not in charge you're in charge. Now I will say, if I think you're avoiding something, I'll say, if I think, you know, you seem to be not approaching something or you're stuck somewhere. But if I ask you a question that you don't, you're not ready to answer, tell me you're not ready to answer it yet. We'll go as slowly as we need to. Mm -hmm. And um, so the first few sessions are very careful, very soothing, as soothing as I can make them, very um, supportive of how difficult this is just to begin to um, disentangle some of this. I used the, the um, when I was a girl, we used to play pickup sticks. I think the, the, uh, the modern equivalent to that is a game called Jenga, where you have to, uh, uh, remove the piece that you think won't dislodge the whole uh, ball of wax sort of. Well, that's how this work is for people. They have to mm -hmm. try to figure out what can I begin to fudge on or what can I begin to jostle or what can I begin to tweak where I don't, I don't immediately become overly afraid that my whole life is going to become mm -hmm. out, of, out of whack and I'm not going to mm -hmm. feel like myself anymore. I, I, we were just talking about this on the walk before we sat down to, to do this interview, um, how much we loved that you addressed grief and the necessity mm -hmm. of grief coming to the surface. Um, mm -hmm. And that, yes, it is the thing that people are afraid will happen, much like you're talking about, you know, the Jenga toppling. Mm -hmm. um, but that when you start to address it, you can get quite angry and sad at, the t at right. all of the time you've stayed hidden. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, there's a lot of grief. And again, I think um, so many of these people, the, the woman I talked about who had told her family about the sexual abuse and they did nothing. Gosh, she may have worked with me for another two years off and on before one day she came in and things weren't going well for her. And she looked at me and she, she, she would, every time she'd start to cry, she would just do this. She was like constantly mm. not letting tears roll down her cheeks. But she looked at me and she said, I'm ready. And I said, what are you ready for? And she goes, I've got to let these feelings out. I've mm. got to let these feelings out. Mm -hmm. And I held her and she sobbed and allowed herself to feel what she had been 
not wanting to feel for a long time because it felt like she was being disloyal. She was being mm -hmm. ungrateful. Mm -hmm. She was being self-centered. She mm -hmm. was being all these things. And she finally allowed herself to go there. Mm -hmm. And um, it, is a, it is such an honor to be in the room with someone when they do that. Yeah. Um, and when they take that risk. And so that's what a lot of these people uh, will find that's on the journey. And it is, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't make you stuck. In fact, if anything, it gives you freedom and it gives you more of a sense of self-acceptance. I think some people think that if I start to cry, I'll never stop that expression. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I always say to them, no, you'll stop. You'll, you'll eat again. You'll blow your nose. You'll, yeah. you know, you're going to go to the washroom. You're going to go to work. You're going to do things, but they have this false belief and they repeat that statement in their own mind, an unwanted intrusive thought. If I open that up, I won't be able to control it. Right. And I love how you're just saying, oh, no, I, she just sat and cried. Mm -hmm. And we can continue to talk. We can continue life. Mm -hmm. Instead of the false belief, if I start, I can't stop. It's not true. No. Um, I think the grief that is um, most difficult is the 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 death of a child mm -hmm. and that grief certainly can feel like it's never going to go away and there's never, but even those people, um, I'm, I'm volunteer with the local organization just a bit, not a lot, but it's called parents left behind. And, you know, the people whose children have died 10 and 15 years ago say those first three, four, five years, I didn't think that grief would ever lift, but it, it didn't, lift but it became more tolerable so you know that kind of grief is one thing and that's another book yeah. most of the grief that I'm talking about here in, in perfectly in depression is the, the grief of the um the opportunities never had the grief of the parents who didn't understand the and the parents you'll never have the, the grief of uh, how you thought that living your life would, would give you a certain amount of accomplishment or security and how, you know, you're just so sad and angry that that's not what happened. And you're grieving things that you haven't allowed yourself to grieve at all. Um, multiple miscarriages, divorces, uh, rapes, um, yeah. um, having an overly jealous mother. Um, I mean, it, gosh, it could be a myriad of things. So, mm -hmm. um, and grief scares people because they think, like you say, you know, that, that it won't go away, but it, it, it does. It, mm -hmm. In fact, the more you connect with it, the more manageable it gets. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to ask, um, and I know it's, it's not necessarily going to be a neat and tidy answer, you know, one of your exercises to identify your circle and, and that really close mm -hmm. one and then a little bit further out and so on and so forth. And later on, some of the challenges are to choose someone to open up to, even if it's just a little bit more than you're used to. Mm -hmm. Do you have advice for the people whose names are written in those circles 
um, mm. for someone who is just starting to open up about PhD, um, how we can create a safe space for them and not overstep boundaries or push them backwards? My first thought is that the, the, the point of the exercise was to, uh, if I believe I worded it this way, was the people who really know you are your, you know, the people that have a glimpse of who you are. And then the people who, you know, the, the, the next outer circle would be people who may think they, they think they know you, but they really don't, but you still feel close to them. And then as the circles widen, mm -hmm. um, then those are people that fill up your world, but you wouldn't necessarily count on them for something. So I think by definition, that inner circle is someone, I mean, what the question I will ask is, what about that person causes you to feel that they would listen with empathy and listen with kindness? And they'll say, oh, because I hear her talking about the way she talks to her daughter or, you know, and I could hear that, that she does that with other people. And I think she would, or he, would come close to doing that with me. And so there are, there are things they have seen that give them the person with perfectly hidden depression. So, you know, um, what you don't want to do is say something like, which again, I don't think they'd be in this inner circle if they were this kind of person, but um, to say something like, well, I can't believe you didn't tell me this before. I thought I was really your good friend. Make it all or something you. discounting, you know. So, uh, but again, I'm hoping that the way that you're beginning to define this inner circle, you you know that they're not a blamer. You know that they are not. They've given you evidence of that. Mm -hmm. They've given you evidence of being able to listen with discernment and and listen with just support and not solve your try to solve the problem. Um, you know, I've had people tell me. Um, in fact, this happened to me, actually. I, I confided in somebody one time who was not in my inner circle. It was really a stupid thing for me to do. But I confided in them that I had panic disorder. And I can appear extremely extroverted. And he looked at me and said, you don't have panic disorder. You, you know, mm -hmm. there's no way you have panic disorder. And I was just kind of went, oh, okay. So, um, you know, what you what some perfectionists will do is they'll tell someone I'm really, I struggle more than I appear or I, I get depressed sometimes and they'll say, well, I would never, you know, I, I don't, I don't get that about you. It, you, you know, it, it's, it's instead of listening with acceptance and that you don't know really, we, we don't, we don't, we don't know a lot about one another. Mm -hmm. frequently and so if you somehow take personal offense to someone telling you that or you are listening with your own agenda then that could be a problem so you know kind of listen just with the idea of helping um, that person go deeper into who they are lovely mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah oh my god Thank you. Mm -hmm. Sure, of course. Yeah. Is there anything that you, anything else that you'd like to discuss or highlight? Well, I just want to give you all some feedback that um, 
other people have read the book, but it, it's obvious that you have really studied this book. And I appreciate that so much. Yeah. You've asked me questions today that absolutely no one else has asked me. Well, and that you. means a lot to me. I mean, I, um, so thank you. And really, truly my gratitude. Um, thank you. I, I, I mean, your listeners are really lucky they have people like you doing this hosting this and so I hope they know that I bet they do know that and um so I I'm I'm I can't wait to tell my husband I actually had an interview with somebody and I think they read the book oh oh yeah oh yeah we've read your book we have it Mm -hmm. note-taked or um flagged we have highlighted things we take questions out of the book mm-hmm. and post them and use them. If we're going to say to other people um, to work on themselves, we want them to know we work on ourselves. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that it is sincere. We don't just ask you on just to have an author on. Right. We have you on sincerely because we believe the work that you are doing really can reach people and change their lives. And that's going to make me cry a little bit. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. You're very welcome. And Thank you. Um, Dr. Margaret, um, we would really like to encourage listeners to go to SelfWorks um, uh, and, and listen to your podcast show because you do talk about other topics as well. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. You do a great first show on therapy. Oh. I would really like to point this out to our listeners today. For those people who have tried therapy and think... <laughs> and just dismiss it. Go listen to Dr. Margaret's first show on finding a good therapist and be responsible people to find a good therapist. Mm -hmm. I can remember recording that show and I was so nervous and I had just taken this um, class, you know, I'd taken this class about how to do it, a month long class where the learning curve was so steep. And at that time I was editing my own stuff. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, but I, 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 the first 10 recordings were things I really wanted to do because in the class I learned that the average number of episodes that podcasters tend to do is eight. Oh. And so I thought, well, I'm going to get my most important topics out there <laughs> and certainly choosing a good therapist and not letting, yeah. letting things get in the way that really need to be attended to. Right. Um, because there's so much trust that needs to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I want to encourage our listeners to listen to your show because this isn't your only topic mm-hmm. and your only expertise. Mm-hmm. They're going to listen to your shows in this beautiful voice that you have that just is so easy to listen to and so easy to educate ourselves. So, um, and Kelly and I are just totally thrilled to have you. So if you write another oh, book, goodness. please email us. <laughs> We would so love to read another book and host you on the show again. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the only thing that I've thought about doing especially is um, to actually try to um, write a, create a workbook that would go along with the book because um, 
New Harbinger didn't want me to like include in the book places for people to write. Mm-hmm. And I think if people had another sort of accompanying workbook that was not expensive, but that would just explain, go into a little more depth of why the exercises are important and then, you know, give them support. I think that would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, that's beautiful work. So, I mean, I think the the most unfortunate piece of information that we'll have to deliver to listeners today is that you are not allowed to counsel outside of your state. No, I'm not. No. <laughs> what a disappointment for everyone outside of Arkansas. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that is your governing body that that makes it so. Um, but yes, they, they are they are moving to a little more liberal stance on that. Meaning, if the people in Arkansas are temporarily in Texas, I can do it. You, if you are licensed in a, if let's say someone from, uh, I'll just pick on Texas again, um, is um, wants to do therapy with me, I could go to the trouble to get um, uh, licensed in Texas. But some states, it's really really difficult. And frankly, I've had. I, I've got all I can handle <laughs> doing this, but no, yeah. I, I, I'm hoping that self-work feels like that, that mm-hmm. self-work feels like uh, working with me on something. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you again so much mm-hmm. for taking thank you, Kelly so much Karen. time. I it. Yeah. yeah thank it you was very much. wonderful to have you. Thank you. Y'all, so, y'all are just super. <laughs> thank you. I, I also want to ask too, being uh, small businesses, is there a best place to support you when listeners mm. go to buy your book, as opposed to, you know, searching on Amazon or things like that? Do you have a better option for them? Well, you know, that's really your preference. I mean, I, Amazon probably, I, as much as I have some problems with it, they are also the people that have the rankings, and so the more books that are bought on Amazon, the more you know, the more it looks like I've done well. But Barnes okay. and Noble is co- is carrying them, and mm. your local books, your local bookstore. Well, you can order it um, from them, okay. and um, and then you actually can get it for a little even cheaper through New Harbinger. So okay. Um, okay. yeah, so there are lots of ways of getting it, and. Like I said before, it's an audio book, an ebook, and a paperback right now. So, wonderful. And the fun news is that it's actually being translated into right now five different languages. Congratulations! Being translated into Russian, um, Polish, Dutch, Turkish, and Korean. So, <laughs> yeah, that's really exciting. That's fantastic. Yes, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. All right. Well, we'll let you get back to your day. Um, We just can't say thank you enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, We look forward to hopefully being able to chat with you in the future. Well, you know, I would love to talk to y'all about YouTube. So, because it sounds really, you know, y'all have all kinds of descriptors after your name that I would love to know more about. So, thank you. We would enjoy that. Yeah, very much. Well, we'll have to work work on that. Lovely. Thank y'all so much. If you're in Arkansas, let me know. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Have a beautiful evening. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was a shit ton of fun. Yes, it was. I feel that we kept our composure pretty well, you know, throughout the entire show. How do you feel? I do. I think we did too. And, and, um, I I think she presented a lot of information in an hour and a half Mm -hmm. very well. I think it was engaging. I think she tried to help people who have it identify it. 
Yeah, and through a lot of stories, which I mm-hmm. I just so appreciate. And and sh- she helps you connect to her. Mm-hmm. by and She talks about her own. Mm-hmm. So I think she did just an absolutely beautiful job. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we're encouraging everyone um, who identifies with this or has a loved one who does identify with it, go mm-hmm. buy the book, go download the mm-hmm. podcast, subscribe to those podcasts as well. Um, you know, that podcast is not just on Perfectly Hidden Depression, as you did mention mm-hmm. in the show. There are plenty of other topics that are wildly helpful, as well as um, listeners' questions that she hosts each show to. Um, she's just an absolute um, fountain of, of knowledge and wisdom. So I I will encourage you, you know, to go to New Harbinger, as she mentioned, to purchase the book if that's something that you're interested in. Uh, and as always, if you have questions or comments about today's show, email us at info at If you've got questions for Dr. Margaret, um, she's got a lovely podcast that advertises her email address as well as her website, so you can contact her directly if you wish to. Um, and we, we hope that uh, you guys can show her as much support as you've shown us. Like, share, comment, review, post, anything you can to help, uh, to help her along spread what, like a, just a wonderful message mm-hmm. um, and important information. Mm -hmm. So enjoy your weekend.